You're listening to the Inner Field Trip Podcast, designed to help highly sensitive people and deep feelers explore unconscious biases so they protect their energy, stand on the side of justice, and become better ancestors. My name is Lisa Renee Hall, your host and tour guide. This is episode two. A few weeks back, I got a private message on Instagram from Tiffany M. Jewell. She wanted to send me a review copy of her book called This Book is Anti-Racist. I've known Tiffany on Instagram for about a year at that point. And because I am a huge fan of her work and how she puts her work out in the world, I immediately said yes. Yet when I got the book, it sat on my bookshelf for a few weeks. I flipped through it quickly and noticed that there were some bright and colorful illustrations in the book, but I did nothing else with it. It wasn't until we were in the midst of the pandemic and we were sheltering in place that I was able to start reading a lot of the books that I've received to review. And Tiffany's was one that captured my attention. It's geared to teenagers and young adults, but I also think it's geared to adults who have or who learn best visually because of all the beautiful pictures and graphics. And the book takes an international and global look at the ways in which anti-blackness and the culture of white supremacy has taken hold globally. The reason why I follow Tiffany's work is because I have a lot of parents and teachers in my community on Patreon. And one of the big questions they have is how to raise and or teach children to be anti-biased and anti-racist and anti-oppressive. And so I often send teachers and parents to Tiffany's Instagram profile so that they can learn more from her. So Tiffany and I in this conversation talk more about the ways in which parents and teachers can mold children so that they use their privileges responsibly. And in a world where the denial of bias causes more bias, it's important that young learners understand that bias does exist. And Tiffany's philosophy is that children are never too young to learn about the ways in which inequities and oppression exist in our world. Let me tell you more about Tiffany M. Jewell, who we're going to meet in just a moment. She is a black biracial writer, twin sister, first generation American, cisgender mama, anti-bias, anti-racist educator and consultant. And her book, this book is anti-racist, became a number one New York Times bestseller and a number one indie bestselling book. And as I explained before, it's a book for young folks and everyone to support waking up, taking action and doing the work of becoming anti-racist. And what I love about it, aside from the illustrations, is that there are a number of reflective writing questions that people can use in order to unpack their unconscious biases using stream of consciousness writing. Tiffany has been working with children and families for over 18 years. And she worked as a Montessori educator for 15 years. And she enjoys exploring social justice with young folks, which is very obvious when you look at her Instagram profile. She works closely with Brit 
Hawthorne, another anti-racist Montessori educator. And so if you don't know Britt's work, I will link to her work as well in the show notes. Along with Britt, Tiffany co-founded an organization that strives to support educators and caregivers in their anti-bias, anti-racist journeys. For more about Tiffany, check out the show notes for this episode at www.innerfieldtrip.com. Now, here's Tiffany. Tiffany, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to chat with you. Well, I'm excited too. And I was sharing in the introduction about how awesome your book is. I know it's geared to teenagers and young readers and young adults, but as a visual learner, oh my goodness, this book was so amazing. Thank you. With all the pictures and graphics and it was just like, ooh, I love it. (laughs) Love it. Thank you. Yeah, Aurelia Durand, the illustrator, is amazing. Well, she did a super, super job. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. Okay, so I can geek out about the book all day. (laughs) But what I want to start with is a question I ask all my guests in order to start this conversation. And so my my question to you is, who are the ancestors, both living and passed on, who inform who you are and your work and the work that you do today? Yeah, I love that question. So I think of my familial ancestors um, and my family on my mom's side is very close. Um, I'm a first generation American. My mom came over to this country when she was four with her, um, her parents and her older sister they came from England. Uh, so a lot of our kind of like the family story that I know best um, comes from my mom's side because my dad um, stopped really kind of being a part of our life when we were five. And so I think of like my, the kind of what my mom was, must have been feeling and going through when she entered into school in America and her accent was different than the kids in her school and um, just kind of being taken on a a journey away from your family, um, your grandparents and your uncle and your friends and everyone you know, and, and how much of that has really kind of, uh, helped to kind of guide me into wanting to really establish roots um, and to know more about who I am. Um, And then there's also like the stories in my family of, of what life was like during world war II. Um, And so my grandmother, my Nana is one of those ancestors I think about. And um, I don't know, like her life was uh, very different from mine. Um, like she had to move to the countryside during World War II, which is uh, like pretty abrupt away from your family and everything and how that kind of like story kept repeating, like young folks being separated from family for a time or for a long time. Um, So thinking of those kind of like ancestral roots on my mom's side and my dad's side of my family I don't know about our ancestors at all. Um, I know his mom, but that is about it. So there's kind of that, um, I don't want to say whole, but I'm going to say that whole of of the unknowing and the not knowing. And that has really kind of 
really pushes me to to want to learn about history and and the people around me and how communities come came to be um how people stayed connected because there's like this connection loss that i feel um familial wise yes Yes. yeah and then there's like those deep ancestors um that i call it like i think of malcolm x all the time and like my children from when they were like pretty young could pinpoint, they'd be like, there's Malcolm X. Like they know what he looks like. (laughs) They know his story. Um, And just that kind of like that, that continual like human transformation. Um, And he was showing us that multiple times and, and sharing truth. And, and he didn't fear the truth, um, which I think is a, a really, has really helped me when I work with, with young folks and families and, and other people. There's so many, um, I have a deep love and respect and like awe for Harriet Tubman. Um, like little kid Tiffany was always doing research on Harriet Tubman. <laughs> <laughs> like I was just like, she's so amazing. And the more I learned about her and as I learned about her more as an adult too, I'm just like, wow, like, how do we, how do we like go through life? How do people go through life not knowing who Harriet Tubman is? <laughs> um, I don't know. There's so, there's so many. And I, I feel like I keep kind of collecting ancestors, um, which has been really beautiful and inspiring and um, kind of going through that with my children. Now we were just like yesterday looking at a book um, that has, I think it's called 101 Changemakers from Haymarket Press. And there's these just pictures, real pictures of people like Stokely Carmichael and Studs Terkel. And, and we're just looking through it and they're, they're wanting to know like the stories and, and look at it. That book is like, these are also people, they're our ancestors as well. So there's a lot of ancestors, I feel like, who are circling around me and, and calling me in. I appreciate that because it, again, helps to give a sense as to what is informing the body of work that you steward now to this day. And so as a woman with light skin privilege, who also identifies with a marginalized group, how does that identity, that nuance in your identity help and or hinder what you do yeah this is like and this is the thing with um with having light skin privilege like there's this it's so easy to kind of fall into that um that nut that like dullness of white supremacy white inferiority culture where you're like hey you know that individualism and that exceptionalism where you're like well i got to go to college because i deserve to go um and that, that kind of like feeling that comes, I think that is my husband and I were just talking about kind of like that American identity uh, of the dominant culture. And, um, you know, I, I am thankful I was brought up in a home of immigrants because it wasn't forced onto us so immediately um, that kind of like having light skin and, and um, being different and having the quote unquote good hair and um, 
and my sister has blue eyes. So having like the light eyes, like having all those things. And then as we kind of like move throughout, as we age, um, noticing how many times people like white folks will defer to me to speak for all folks, uh, for all black folks and all, um, biracial folks and how I'm the one that gets called to do the work when I'm not the one who should, who, who should be doing the work. Like, it, so I see kind of my role and in, in what I'm trying to do and practice. And, um, you know, I, I was talking to a friend um, about this too, is like we, as who is also biracial, like we as biracial people, like have a lot of like, we have a lot of work to do. Um, and a lot of like, I don't want to say extra work, but because it's not extra, it's just like, there's, there's more work for us to do because um, I feel like I can fall into that work of the dominant culture and believing what they say about me yes. and keep going with it. And just feeling like, yes, this is, this is my place and yay, I'm accepted. Um, and then there's the work of like using that and like using that space that they create for me or, or using the um, time that is bestowed upon me and, and stepping aside and that and having um, black folks and darker folks and folks who, uh, when I look at the intersections, who have more um, border, borderland identities than I do, and using that space and holding that door open for them, I think it's really important. And, and you know, not just being like, all right, you can come in and you, you can't, but like holding it open where I'm like the one, like I feel like I, I'm the one that could just like physically stand in the doorway and hold the door open. So as men, like whoever needs to go through can go through. And so that's really what I'm working on constantly is holding that door open and doing that work too of when I work with folks in predominantly white spaces and, and white organizations, like really calling that out too. And like, you called me because I'm the easy person to listen to and really naming it because I think one thing white folks believe is that biracial folks are kind of like the bridge and um they can they'll uh they're easier they'll understand us like we can share all of uh, the harm we've inflicted on people who are darker than them um but they 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 kind of like use us and so they're gonna use me i can use them and also kind of like wake them up and and remind them that that uh, I am black. I think um, one of the things growing up is like our school labeled my sister and I as white. White spaces were were always like we were always very easily able to go into white spaces. And uh, my mom, who is white, was always like, "You are black kids. Like you are black. You're biracial. You're mixed." Like we had different different words, different terms for them at different times. And it was so like if my mom had really kind of like forced us and pushed us to be white kids and, and just fit into that dominant culture. I don't think I would be able to do what I am doing now 
because she always like reminded us of who we are. And it, it was like in a really like beautiful way, just but, but like, you're black. Like we'd look at it and be like, how do we label, you know, at the time it was always like check black or white. Um, sometimes <laughs> you can check other. And we'd be like, how do we label? And she'd be like, you're black. Um, and that was like, I appreciate that because she really could have easily not have done that too. Because we are, we are very light. As you look back at your upbringing, yeah. very often white parents throw up their hands and say, hey, you know, I don't know how to raise these right. kids to be anti-bias and anti-racist. What did your mom do? I, I know you just mentioned that she would always say, you're Black, you're Black. But how was she prepared? What prepared her to be able to help you and your sister standing, stand in your unique identity? I attribute a lot of it to um, the neighborhood we grew up in too. And I like, I've been reflecting a lot on my neighborhood because my eight year old asked a lot of questions like, what did you do when I was, you were my age. And our neighborhood was in the, the um, South side, the city of, of Syracuse, New York. And like on our street, we had families who were black, indigenous, white, um, white immigrants, Cambodian, Vietnamese, like it was just like a beautiful racially expansive mix of people. And so you could cross the street and you could see yourself reflected in, in people. You could walk to school. Like, so we had this kind of tight community of, of kids, um, which was really helpful. We also like, we played together and we, we learned together and, you know, we cried together and I think that can be really affirming and powerful for us to like see ourselves reflected in each other and also like see the beauty in each other's differences. Um, when we'd go into each other's houses or um, share each other's food. And that, that like, that helped. Um, our school was also predominantly black and brown kids, predominantly black. And so having, even though our teachers were white, having other kids and parents just seeing blackness and, you know, experiencing black joy um, as children was really affirming. So having those and then a mother who, um, you know, like I, like she learned, she knew how to do our hair which is, seems like a small thing, but, oh, but that's, that's huge. it's huge, you know, and like <laughs> every evening we'd sit on the floor between her knees and she'd comb out her hair and she'd put the ultra sheen in and, and braid it up. And, um, and having those moments, you know, like, like showed us that she was like cared about us and cared about who we were not who she like, or who society thinks we should have been, um, you know, I, I'm, pretty sure and I haven't talked to her about this but I'm pretty sure when we told her that we wanted to straighten our hair that she was probably devastated um you know she did it it was also like really expensive and we grew up working class poor so I think about that too but um and then when we stopped straightening it she was very happy and because she loved our curls and she really um just kind of was always like the mama, you know, she's like that proud mama who's always proud and like supportive of what we do. She gave us names like my Tiffany Jewel and my sister's name is Tiara Jewel. Like she shared, like I gave you names. Mm -hmm. So if you ever become famous, you don't have to change them. So like coming into the world with like a mom who's like, you're going to be great. was really affirming. 
Yes, I imagine. And and did you find that she was consistent? I mean, because you're her children, so right. you know she would treat you as human beings. And, yep. and did you find that she was consistently that way with others as well? Yeah, and like reflecting back to especially like middle school was I always say it was kind of like when I was like lost who I was for a moment um, because and like middle schoolers spend so much time. Uh, figuring out who they are and trying to fit in in the like middle school was when I like had like all white friends and spent a lot of time with white people and uh, my white mom I say would was more skeptical of white people than black and brown folks in our life and I don't know why and it like we haven't talked about this but just like remembering the feelings and the and the conversations and how she always was like supportive and loved um, our black friends and, and still like to this day will ask like, how is this person doing? Are you still in touch with them? Or I, I saw in the newspaper, this kid from, you know, your elementary school, I'm like, I don't even remember who that is, uh, is doing this now and, and really excited about the accomplishments of black and brown kids in my life. But I don't always hear that about the white kids who are in my life. Interesting. Very yeah, interesting. super interesting. Now I want to talk to her more about this. Like, hmm. It'll be interesting to hear what, uh, what she shares with you. Yeah. That'd be very interesting. So today you help to create and guide teachers and parents and caregivers on using curriculum to yeah. help children and teenagers become anti-biased. How did you move into this work? feel like this work uh like grabbed me (laughs) and just like pulled me in um and it like I can go back to when I was in school and just like noticing injustice but not having the language for it or my mom um called me like a contrarian when I was a kid because I would always question like why are we learning about Christopher Columbus he didn't do anything like (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> except for like bring devastation, um, you know, or, or when we were like in science class learning about reforestation, I would talk about like the def- like the deforestation and reforestation methods that were used in like by like indigenous Brazilians. I was like always wanting to know more um, and maybe kind of maybe got this from my mom or maybe she got it from me. I don't know, but like skeptical of like the very like Eurocentric white centric Um, curriculum we were reading and you know there were like little parts of it when in in college my professor uh allowed for a class of like everyone but me in the class was white to to vote on whether they would read the autobiography of Malcolm X or they would watch Thelma and Louise and they chose Thelma and Louise it's a movie like they've seen it before like Um, And to me, I was like, I don't understand what, like, so there are always these like questions coming up and often around um, education. And so when I started working with children, I was kind of like, these are the people, like children are my people. And they're the people that like, they go, like, they're so often quickly silenced and adults don't feel like kids 
have the capacity to know the truth and to look to hear like about the past. Um, and so that really drove me as a way to kind of honor all the, the young people I've ever worked with, but also really seeing that children can handle it and understand history and truth so much easier and more clearly than adults that it made sense to do that. Working with kids also just felt like very natural to me. I, I, I love it when I kind of discover, I don't want to say discovered, when I read um, the kind of framework for anti-bias education and I read Beverly Daniel Tatum's Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting in the Cafeteria? I was kind of like, all right, this is like, this is the work we need to do in all of our schools and education. And I always kind of seeked out schools that were doing that, whether it was like during my student teaching time in college or out of college, like I'm working in a daycare center, preschool, like always looking for places where the adults were affirming children and just pouring love into their, into their little selves. It's beautiful. And I'm going to ask you more about the Montessori model and then also how parents and teachers can start to build uh, an anti-bias framework within their homes, within their classrooms. Yeah. But first, so we're going to take a quick break. Okay. I'm in conversation with Tiffany M. Jewell, New York Times best-selling author. I love saying that. Of <laughs> <laughs> uh, This book is Anti-Racist, 20 Lessons on How to Wake Up, Take Action, and Do the Work. And we'll hear more from her after this sponsored message. Hey there, my name is Jill Prescott and I am a spiritual badass. So I began working with Lisa Renee Hall quite some time ago, joined her Patreon community pretty much at the beginning or close to it. And I must say that when I met Lisa, I felt like I had met a kindred spirit. She is straight talking the way I am. She says it how it is, but she also has a deep level of compassion and understanding. And that allowed me to show up as I am very intuitive, very energetically sensitive in all these ways and do work in a space in which I was held with respect, but also held in the, in the space of come into this work with an open heart and open mind and be willing to fall down, fail and get back up. And there will still be a space for me. So as far as the actual work goes, how she leads people through anti-racism work, through um, discovering your unconscious biases, is that uh, through the, the writing prompts and the stream of consciousness writing, that's a big deal for me because I believe that much deeper than the surface thoughts are the truth about how we feel. I am someone who has had relationships on all levels with Black people, with Indigenous First Nations, with people of color, uh, with the LGBTQ community. And so even though I thought, oh, I, this is, you know, I'm totally sensitive to this. And of course, I'm not racist. And of course, I don't have any hidden biases. I mean, before I started this work, that's kind of where I was at. What I realized was, even with that, and as a matter of fact, sometimes because of it, there were things I couldn't see. 
So what this work has done for me is it's uncovered some stuff I didn't realize was there, making me a better ally, making me a better human being generally, making me a better stepmom and friend and partner. The deep digging that I've done has really impacted me personally. But then there's this other piece which I'm really deeply committed to, and that is making a global impact. I, I truly believe that we can't make a global impact. We can't actually step out in the world, speak to this topic, or be someone who is affecting change without having dealt with this internal stuff. I, and I believe this is true of everything. So this fits so beautifully into my entire belief system around all of that. When I first started really diving into this topic and became highly aware of what was going on and waking up to it several years ago, the injustices that were happening in the world, I'm a fiery kind of a human being. And I just wanted to go out there and rip the system apart. And I got into many, many fights on social media with people. And I was quite aggressive in my approach. And through this work, I really learned to step back, to take a back seat, to understand how important it is to put forward the voices of Black people of color, Indigenous First Nations, LGBTQ community, and be the support there rather than being the one out front fighting for it. So the work has been impactful in so many areas. And uh, I really invite you to consider that you don't know what you don't know. And the work that Lisa's offering will open up space for you to suddenly know. I'm going to just leave this last piece with you. When we do this work in community, we have a support system in place for when we mess up, for when we fall down, for when we don't know what to do or say or be, when we're grieving, to have somebody like Lisa to come to in the group that I know I can trust, that has a lot of integrity. It'll make all the world a difference for you. For those looking at this and considering of being a part of the community, let me be the first to welcome you. And we're back. I'm in conversation with Tiffany M. Jewell. And Tiffany, one of the things you said before we took a break is that children have a capacity for truth. And we often yeah. remove that ability for children to process truth. What is your experience, or actually, what's your response to parents, especially white parents who say that well, you know, little Johnny, little Sally's too young to learn about racism, about oppression. My response is always the response of Black children are um, never too young to, to be in the receiving end of oppression and harm. Then white children are never too young to, to hear about it and learn about it um, and stand up against it. I mean, as young as I think it's like, six months children start to develop like pre-prejudice behavior where they start to notice, not just notice who's around them, but have preferences for skin color. Um, and around two is when they like really work to start categorizing people and then move into, as they get a little bit older, kind of that language that we hear a lot in schools, like you can't play with, you can't be a princess because you're brown and there are no brown princesses. And so children are, they're, 
whether we guide them through it or not, they're going to like do these kind of things that are natural of like categorization and um, trying to figure out the world and, and creating their own rules and boundaries. So for me as a parent and, and an educator, I always err on like including them in the work with me. Um, otherwise, like they're just going to kind of create their own worlds, which are based off of misinformation and untruths and stereotypes because that's what is all around us even if like we're doing all the work we can in our house they're still going to come through um, whether it's like a tv show they watch or um, standing in the aisle at the grocery store and seeing all the magazines and everyone in the magazine cover is white you know we're going to a friend's house or a neighbor's house where um, the alignment is a little different in school and so like they're never too young and that kind of like mindset just really kind of plays into the white supremacy inferiority culture of some folks get to be innocent and human and other folks don't get to be. Um, and that's just not okay. And children see through that. Like I think like they see through it way more clearly than we do as adults. It's interesting because one of my questions I was going to ask you about is the loss of childhood for yeah. black and brown and indigenous children. And it's a concept called adultification. Ooh, yeah. I said it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I always trip up over the word. I know. How damaging is adultification? <sighs> See, there we go. I know. <laughs> How damaging. Adult- adultification. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> How damaging is that? to in particular black children in the classrooms yeah as they're trying to navigate being educated I mean and that's the thing is like we go to schools to be educated to learn and to grow Um, and schools are supposed to be a place where we like feel physically safe where we um, have the courage to grow and to learn and then that doesn't happen for everybody. There's this, you know, the, the great myth that Black folks don't experience pain, that Black folks um, kind of are, have different bodies where we grow um, different ways and faster and become adults faster. And this goes way back to the justification of having enslaved children do the same work as adults and to not just the work, but also to like, um, for for white adults to dominate uh, young black bodies, and we this happens in schools. And um, you know, I think of kind of different teaching methods where um, the adults are in charge; they put themselves in charge of like um, uh, making sure kids stand in line or are tracking their um, tracking them in their eyes and any time uh, a black child maybe is it doesn't tracking an adult with their eyes they're seen as disruptive and they're seen as um, a problem and an antagonistic and white children they get kind of that that pass that slide they you know like oh that maybe they're tired or they're having a hard day and um, this adultification just keeps pushing our littlest our youngest our most vulnerable population into spaces that 
are made for adults, not made for them. I think of juvenile detention centers and I don't have the statistics right off me, but how they are like so predominantly overwhelmed with black and brown and indigenous children or the rates of preschoolers going um, being sent to detention and out of school suspension are so high and it's not the same for white kids. I was in a, a recent school committee meeting and it was so one of my former students was talking about the detention rate in our local district which is like a white liberal like hey we're doing okay aren't we and this student this high schooler was like here are the statistics from our own district and it was so amazing to to have her rattle that off and it was also like incredibly disheartening because our student population is continually continuing to grow um, more black and more brown and uh, the adults are not believing them to be children so there's like that whole in schools they're like oh I'm not I don't need to teach them because they already know these things there's there's also like the adults claiming to be afraid of children um, and so they call like they call the police to schools to handle young young children for not handing in a cell phone or talking back to them it's an issue that is not often talked about in educator spaces like i think of right now there so many teachers are getting ready to go back to school whether it's virtually or in person and i'm pretty certain like no at least in my district, nobody's doing any professional development or learning on the adultification, especially like those preschool and kindergarten teachers. Like they are the first ones on the line, right? Who can like change the perception and be like, they're children, all children are children, but that's not happening. And mental wellness is going to be a yeah. significant issue yep. for a lot of kids going back after having been locked up or not locked up, I shouldn't use that, having, after having to shelter in place right. for many, many months. Yeah. And now going back into school, there's going to be a lot of anxiety. There's oh going to gosh. be, And so it becomes even more important for teachers to work on unpacking that bias. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, they're like, who, who's more in it? You know, if their belief is that white children are more innocent, they're going to comfort them more. They're going to do the work of making sure that their well-being is met. And the adultification is that black and brown children, oh, they're fine. You know, they don't get sad in the same way or like they can be left, left alone to like manage their own feelings. And that th those are like true biased beliefs that are held by many educators. And even the way that black children learn is different yeah. than white children. Uh, I remember reading something saying that black children tend to respond best when they feel that the teacher cares. Well, and like the thing is, white children need to feel comfortable too, but they already do. Like, because the world and the space of school is made for them. Mm. Um, and so, you know, they have white teachers who are maybe doing high fives or, or like doing some silly dance with them that they saw on a TV show that features white kids or whatever. Um, you know, the decor, maybe the coloring of it. 
is more like what, like I see a lot of teachers setting up classrooms and they're using like pastels and, and pinks and um, it's, you know, colors I would never choose, you know, like what more natural and bright colors too. Um, And just like what's reflective in the home. And I think teachers need to like go go beyond that, that kind of like comfort, which is hard um, because there's like some, you know, you have to learn technology. You have to do, we'll go with the standards and everything, but it's not hard if your priority is to center the, the child and build relationships, which is like, should always be at the core of working with children with anything. And I, and it would be hard to build relationships with a child that you are afraid of because yeah. of your uh, unconscious bias. Right. Exactly. So it's a, it's a terrible cycle that, that unless teachers take the awareness and then move that into action, then it just, yeah. the cycle just keeps perpetuating itself. Yeah. And so you were a Montessori educator for many, many years. Yeah. <laughs> what is it about the Montessori model that is best suited for the incorporation of an anti-bias curriculum? I don't, I'm still like figuring out. And so I was working in a Montessori school for 15 years, which I thought it was only going to be like a two year thing. And it turned into this whole kind of like um, way of, of living, but I'm still trying to figure out if Montessori is the exact, I don't think there is one exact model that works best for anti-bias education or not. But the thing I love and that I was so drawn to Montessori is the way um, children are seen and heard and the environments are really set up with children being at the center. Um, It's not always black and brown children because it really depends on who the educator, the, the teacher, the guide is. But the belief, like Montessori, kind of the belief is that our role as adults is to support young folks in becoming autonomous, becoming autonomous in their learning and their well-being, um, and to kind of support them as they grow older into understanding what we call their cosmic task is, like what their purpose in life is. And the way to do that is to really kind of go through history and look at what came before us um, so we can kind of see the accomplishments of humans, the accomplishment of not just humans, but like all living creatures from blue algae to ferns to dinosaurs. And those, I think, those really spoke to me. I thought it was like so beautiful and to really work on knowing the past, know who you are now, so then you can become a better steward for the future. I also love um, in Montessori how it really is at the heart kind of like guided by children. So if a child in my class or my own child is really interested in something, they can kind of take that interest as far as they, they, they want to go with it. So I had a student who like loved wolves and did so much wolf research and then did this, like wrote this book on wolves to the point where I know more things about wolves than I ever <laughs> thought I would know before. <laughs> um, and it was so beautiful. And, 
and 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 then because of their excitement like the other children in the class were also like learning about wolves and excited about it or they'd see a wolf book or something and they'd like bring it in to share with this child and so there's also this like sense of community around learning and around taking care of each other so those are like the things that really drew me to it the thing and then I look at my friend Trisha helped to found um, indigenous language school and she found through a lot of research that the Montessori method was one of the best methods for um, bringing uh, language into the lives of the children in, in her tribe and and for really kind of perpetuating it because you, you're working with manipulatives you're working at your own pace um, you get to be in a classroom with a teacher and other children for three years so you're really building relationships it's not just kind of like you get to know somebody and then you have a new teacher again and you're like constantly redoing this cycle which maybe works for you or, or doesn't um, and I always like, as soon as, when I have those moments where I'm like, I think I'm falling out of Montessori and usually it's like the institutions that I'm falling out of. It's not the pedagogy. <laughs> um, but I like look at kind of Trisha's school and my friend Amelia, who's starting her own learning center with Montessori as a foundation and it's Afrocentric, um, school for children of the African diaspora. And I look at those and I'm like, there's a method that work can work for all children because it really is like honoring the child and it's not some adult's idea on what they need in order to become like industrious workers for the dominant culture. Right. Right. Yeah. And I know we've been focusing on teachers a lot. Yeah. Ability is not just for teachers alone. Right. To teach children on, in how to become anti-biased. Right. And so how, if, if, let's just say someone's listening and they're like, yeah, 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 I need to, I, you know, what, what's the first thing I need to do? I want my children to grow up and, you know, if they're a white parent, I want my white child to take their privilege yeah. and, and use it responsibly. Cause right yeah. now with all the silence, the ignorance, the apathy, yeah. privilege is being used irresponsibly. Yeah. So a white that's parent, a good way to put it. yes, that's the way I see it. Yeah. Is that until the system of oppression changes and collapse, yep. then we need to understand how to use our privileges with responsibility. Yep. And so a parent might be hearing you right now, Tiffany, and saying to themselves, yeah, so how do I raise my child to be anti-biased? Yeah. How do I raise them to be anti-hierarchical? I heard that once. Yeah. Anti-biased, anti-oppressive. Yeah. What would you suggest is the first step for a parent, a caregiver, or a teacher listening right now? Um, one of the things that we as adults do is we're so quick to take it off of ourselves and put it onto our children. And so I always say the first thing we as adults need to do is to do the work ourselves. And so that, you know, that looks different for everybody. I love Layla Saad's Me and White Supremacy. I, I, that's always like the go-to I um, offer to white folks like here's how you can interrogate yourself as you are doing but to, as you're doing that work of, of becoming anti-bias becoming anti-racist becoming anti-oppressive is like talk about it with your children and I think I I am I am raising two 
white presenting boys like they'll walk through the world and this is just like a conversation i had with an eight-year-old but like they'll walk through the world the world will see them as white believe them honor them like the world will be they'll be fine in the world and so we talk about these things we talk about um, with that with our youngest like he knows his skin color is white i am called white um and that mama is black and biracial, that papa is white and um, Syrian. So like we know, they know these different kind of makeups and, and the language we use to talk about it. Um, but the other thing we do is we kind of like, I don't like the word, we, we question our life. We, we're more critical of our choices of what we're watching as a family, where we're shopping, um, what books we're reading, you know, all of the read-alouds in our house, um, our bedtime stories or read-alouds are really, sh- they've shifted from going to those like old classics because I myself for like years have not read the stories of white men. I'm like, I read enough through in my life to be done with them. I don't need to read anymore. <laughs> like I did that for myself, but I didn't do that for my children. So now we do that and we talk about why, um, like, no, you know, as a family, we're going to read Tristan Strong Saves the World or punches, no, Tristan Strong punches a hole in the sky instead of like Charlotte's Web. Um, yes. And, yes. and really like showing that my white boys, that black folks are joyful and beautiful. So um, showing pictures, walking through the world, you know, going to, like we as a family made a huge um, shift because we could, but we we changed, we moved, and we changed schools because my eight year old was attending the Montessori school, which is a private school where I worked, and I was like, we cannot keep paying for our child to be in this almost this predominantly white community. Like it didn't feel right with me. My husband didn't like it. Like we never wanted to do community things. Um, and so we were able to, um, put him into like the public school that is in this area, the most racially expansive and, um, really like aligns. It's also a school that fully aligns their beliefs of anti-bias, anti-racist. Like it's a school that is doing that work. Not everybody can do that huge shift. So those little things of like acknowledging that we're learning and growing and doing it with our children together is really humbling and beautiful. Um, And also like admitting like to your child, like, Oh my gosh, like I believed in this stereotype for so long and it's a stereotype. This is what a stereotype is. And that's not okay. Um, Because our kids, like they'll also hold us accountable to to things um, and help us to like relearn in a way. Um, My friend, Brett, Hawthorne always says like we as adults are doing the work of unlearning and relearning while our children are just learning alongside us. And so acknowledging kind of that work too is is going to be messy, but the more like we do it, the more practice we have and the more upfront and honest we are, the easier it becomes and the more natural to the point where like as a family, when if you're sitting in on the couch and your kid's like, is this show an anti-racist show? And you're like, well, let's, let's look at that. What do you mean by that? And they can say like, 
well, you know, all the, like, the black and brown characters in the show are just kind of, like, supporting the white character. And you're like, well, what do you think then? They're like, no. And they, then they can turn it off, like, or they shift into a different show, um, which is really fun. But it takes a lot of, like, you got to acknowledge your own, your own self before you put that on your kids. And so you just mentioned around messiness and a question I like to end interviews with is uh, what tips do you have for those who have responsibility over children in their quest or or sorry, let me, let me rephrase. What tips do you have for parents, teachers, caregivers to in stumbling bravely in their quest to become anti-bias, anti-racist or anti-oppressive? I think um, to always keep the child at the center um, and to really do that work of letting go of your own ego. I love, I think so much. um, And I was introduced to the the concept um, by Lila June, who's an indigenous uh, singer, songwriter, activist. And she talks about kind of like the seven generations, like you're doing the work now. So seven generations to come after us will have the same issues, hopefully. And I think of that too, like that work involves us with our children doing it together, not feeling like we are the keepers of the knowledge because they're going to teach us a lot. And um, if we can kind of let go of the, what we've been conditioned to believe about like the role of the adult in imparting knowledge and to really sit and allow ourselves to, to center our kids and to learn from them, then this work kind of really becomes, um, it becomes heart work and not just brain work, uh, becomes work that will really transform us and not just like performative work that we get to tell people about in a Facebook feed. Yeah. Such brilliant, brilliant, brilliant points to thank you for joining me in conversation. You're welcome. Thank you. I was in conversation with Tiffany M. Jewell, New York Times bestselling author of This Book is Anti-Racist. You can find out more about Tiffany, including all the resources mentioned in this episode by going to www.innerfieldtrip.com. My name is Lisa Renee Hall. Stumble bravely.